This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I am so very happy to be here at GYC. My name is Scott Ritzema. I teach Bible at Great Lakes Adventist Academy, and I am very happy to be joined for this seminar with my good friend Chad Cruiser. We grew up together. Both of us came into the church later in life, and Chad's lovely wife, Fadia Cruiser, who's also going to be sharing for the Media on the Brain seminar. And I'm going to let Chad give you just a brief, a brief introduction, and um, then we'll pray and get started. Yes, my name is Chad Cruiser. I'm originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I live on the road full-time wife and I produce documentaries. We go around to archaeologists, theologians, and scholars, and we make documentaries that look similar to Discovery Channel or History Channel. And instead of being skeptical like you would see on there, instead they share, give reasons to believe in the Bible, to believe in Jesus, and the Adventist message. So our ministry is called Anchor Point Films, and we also do seminars on overcoming habits. We talk about the brain. We do seminars on creation and evolution. We talk about Bible memorization. That's basically what we do. If you have an empty seat by you, can you raise your hand? Okay, where you see the raised hands, those of you who would like a seat, uh, they may kick you out if you don't have a seat. So, uh, uh, you see a hand raised, you're welcome to go squeeze next to one of those people. So they have their hands raised, and you can go sit there. All right, well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together. We thank you that media is something that can be used to your glory. We know there's an enemy. We pray that you would bless abundantly, that you would give wisdom that you would give us your Holy Spirit, and that you would give us open hearts to receive what you have for us. Uh, may our lives be touched and transformed, and may they be renewed into your image. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we definitely see it all around us in the 21st century. Everywhere you look, there is media 24-7. Entertainment is the new reality, as we all know. And what we're going to be exploring over the next few sessions, we have six sessions total, and we're going to look at everything under this broad umbrella of media, from, from the video gaming to the, the Hollywood industry, the music industry, advertisers, even our Facebook and texting and spectator sports. We want to see what are the effects of these things. Let's evaluate them critically and objectively. That's going to be hard to, to evaluate it objectively, because if you're like me in here, you're going to raise your hand along with... George Barna, who has said that media exposure is the most serious and widespread, what does that say? Addiction. addiction. Now, anybody in here want to admit that they may have had at some point in their life an addiction to some form of media? Put your hand in the air. Oh boy, that's almost all of us. Now, we throw this word addiction around a little carelessly sometimes, but George Barna was very careful with how he used this word. I actually got a chance to meet George Barna, and I asked him. He's a researcher and pollster. I don't know if you know that name, George Barna, but he's probably the top name in, in Christianity and in, in collecting of data. I said, Dr. Barna, how did you conclude that it's an actual addiction? And not just that, but the most serious one in America. He said, well, what we did was... We took the seven-question survey that the American Psychiatric Association uses to diagnose an addiction. So if somebody may be struggling with alcoholism or whatever it is, they have a survey, and then however many answers you say yes to on that, you actually would be diagnosed with an addiction. They just took that same survey and asked people those very same questions about their favorite media. And he found actually that the majority of Americans have what would qualify as an addiction to media. Now, you might say, well, is that a diagnosable thing? In the American Psychiatry Bible, as it's known, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, the, the method that psychiatrists use for diagnosing an addiction now lists gaming, video gaming, as an actual qualifiable diagnosable addiction. So we are dealing with something new in the 21st century that we've never dealt with before. And so we need to look at that as a people. And here are the statistics. I don't know if you know how big this is. This is definitely not like it was when I was a kid growing up in the 1980s. But kids today, ages 2 to 5, are viewing over 32 hours of television per week. 
ages 8 to 18 are viewing five hours per day. And on top of that, when we look at the worldly music, two and a half hours of music in addition to the television viewing, although some studies say up to six hours when you account for multitasking. Moving along, the average young person racks up 10,000 hours of video gaming by the age of 21. Then when you isolate out the, the five million gamers that are playing the most amount of video games, we're looking at 40 hours per week of video games that not just a few people, but five million Americans are playing 40 hours of video gaming a week. We're looking at some serious imbalances here. The average college-age boy, I was interested in how much are we watching of spectator sports, just as a little anecdotal point. Eight hours per week for the average college-age boy is spent viewing the actual games. This doesn't count sports news and all of the other things, but eight hours a week. And if half of them are watching it, then that would be 16 hours per week for the average spectator sports viewing college male. One more statistic on that. The total screen time for the average American child is over 53 hours per week. 53 hours per week, nearly eight hours a day. The average child will actually spend more time watching TV by the age spending in conversation with his father in his entire lifetime. Now, if that's not a sad anecdote, I don't know what is. But this is the reason why we do the Media on the Brain seminar. Because we know it's a problem. Everybody knows it's a problem. All of you sitting in here, maybe you're struggling with it personally, or maybe your heart just aches for the people that you see so immersed in this stuff that they're missing out on reality. Now, I was curious, what are the statistics about Adventist youth? I don't know of any data out there, so I did a little informal survey myself. I got a hold of uh, about 50 Adventist uh, Academy-age students, and I asked them to report to me anonymously how much TV and movies and video games they had watched over or, or played over the previous week. Here's what the numbers were. Four hours per day of TV, movies, and video gaming, and then only 10 minutes per day of, of spiritual exercises, Bible study, prayer, the, the disciplines that we have to bring us closer to Jesus Christ, that number, would four hours to 10 minutes, would look like this on a graph, 25 to 1. That was a sobering statistic for me, to see where we stand as youth in America today, as Seventh-day Adventist youth. But I was also curious, just to compare it, what about our diets? Do you know the standard American diet kind of looks like that, right? And, and I actually looked into the number of calories we are consuming from healthy plant-based sources versus the number of calories we're consuming from everything else. Guess what the, the ratio is? Exactly the same. 25 to 1 healthy, unhealthy calories to healthy calories. Now we know that this diet is killing us physically. But my question is, do we know how this media diet is affecting us spiritually. If we don't come to grips with this, this could be our downfall, not just as an individual, but as a people. So the Media on the Brain Seminar came into existence as I, I deal on a daily basis with these, these youth that I love. I became a father just a, a two years ago, and I have little ones that I'm curious. How does this media affect us? And the, the research is in, and it's... It, it's pretty, pretty uh, a sobering reality that we're going to explore over the next couple of days. Um, the, if you're wondering what is the relationship, by the way, between what you see here over the next five, six, session, six sessions, including this one, what's the relationship between this material and the material on the DVDs that you'll see at our booth, uh, Belt of Truth Ministries has a booth where we're, where we're sharing this, this media on the brain material. And what, what we're going to do here live is I'm bringing some different information, some new information, and also some that is also on the DVDs. Chad and Fadia Cruiser are sharing this, this uh, material also with you this, the, today, this afternoon, and tomorrow, and Sabbath, but they are not on the DVDs. So if you're curious about how those relate, that's, that's about the, the explanation that I would give. And also, I, I would want to mention that a lot of the material that's on the DVDs we are not covering just for the sake of time here today. So we're going to be moving quickly, see how much of this we can cover. Let's start with session one, shall we? TV in your brain, the good news. I want to begin with a Bible text, Romans 12.2. This is probably very familiar to most of you, I hope. And it says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. God wants to change and transform your mind. And that is salvation in the last days. The word salvation means to heal. And God wants to do a transformative work in each 
of you. What does this have to do with media? Well, the media is doing the conforming and God is doing the transforming. If you take a look at what the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended, they, do you know how many hours of television they recommend for children under two? Zero hours. They say ch small children shouldn't have any, any television at all. And the government of France actually goes even further and says, in the nation of France, it is illegal to air television on the public airwaves aimed at children under three. They're clued in a little bit, aren't they? Why the change? It hasn't always been like this. When I was a kid, it was all about the Sesame Street. Even when my nephews and nieces were being born 15 years ago, it was Baby Einstein, you know, Veggie Tales, Curious George. Have the children watch all of this beneficial material. Well, in France, it's illegal to air it on the public airways. American Academy of Pediatrics says zero hours of television for children under two under two. Why is this the case? Chad and Fadia are going to explain some th things to you about the brain. Now I want you to think about that real quickly. France, is France historically known for being a real moral religious country? No. Do you see that secular people are realizing what we as Christians will not acknowledge? We want to back up with the atheists are saying that's immoral, right? Do you see, do you, do you see kind of a strange situation sometimes taking place? Now, do you have the clicker? Okay, cool. Thank you. All right. How's this bugger work? All right, I think I got it. Okay, now we are talking about the brain, media on the brain. How does it affect our mental faculties, which is very important because we've only got one while we're here, so we want to learn to take care of this brain that we've been given. Now the frontal lobe, this portion just in the, obviously on the right side of the screen there, the frontal lobe is about 33% of the human brain. And it is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. It is the decision-making center of the human brain. Some have called it the citadel of the brain. This is where when you are trying to make a decision for either good or bad, you're making that decision right here behind the forehead in the frontal lobe. And so how does this, what does this have to do with media and all these different things? It has to do with our reason and conscience. So when you are, once again, that knowing what is right and wrong, that takes place in your frontal lobe. Your judgments, your decision making, your prayer and worship. So this is a very important part of the brain. If the frontal lobe is strengthened, your spiritual life will be strengthened. If it is inhibited, if it is held back, also your spiritual life will be affected. So we want to learn how to use our frontal lobe aright. Now also it is where we have our empathy, having this connection with other people's emotions that takes place in the frontal lobe. Altruism, so actually having a desire to do something outside of yourself for the good of somebody else, that also takes place. So your love, your other-centered awareness takes place there in the frontal lobe. The Bible talks about this. You know it says, come now, Isaiah 1 verse 18, come now and let us reason together. The spiritual life is a reasonable thing. It is meant to be a reasonable thing, meaning it is not just a, meant to be some, uh, many times people think, oh, religion, that's just all about emotions. Now, emotions play a part in the religious life, but it is to initially and foremost take place in the mind, in the reasonable part of our brain, and that will affect our emotions. So emotions are not a bad thing uh, if, if, directed, but they, if directed in the right area, but we do not want to be run by emotions, but rather run by our reason, and then that will affect positively our emotions. So it says there in Galatians 5, and 23, speaking of the fruit of the Spirit, talking about self control, self-control, which is one of the aspects of the frontal lobe. So we want to learn to have uh, good self-control, but the difficulty is if our frontal lobe is shut down, it will make it nearly impossible to have self-control. So we want to make sure we're not living a lifestyle of having our frontal lobe, uh, you know, basically inebriated. Also, love your neighbor as yourself, as it says there in Mark chapter 12, verse 31. These are aspects of the frontal lobe. So we want this experience of having our brains impacted the way God would have them impacted, and that... Uh, it's going to be based upon the diet on which we feed it. 
Not only the physical diet of eating food, but what we talked about earlier, as Scott mentioned, by what we allow to enter into our reason, what we allow to enter into our minds will affect the rest of our lives. Now, the limbic system, on the other hand, is different than the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe, once again, has to do with reason, but the limbic system is the emotional portion of the brain. You know, mammals have this, and it's enclosed by the rational cerebral cortex. So down deeper, it's, it's so fascinating too, because you have Ellen White talking about the higher powers uh, need to be, they need to be in control of the lower powers. And it's interesting that within your brain, it's actually physiological that, physiologically that way also. That the higher portions of the brain are the rational portions, and physiologically the lower portions of the brain have to do with your, um, it's your emotional center. So we want the higher powers to basically rule over the lower nature. Now the lower nature isn't necessarily bad. I mean, there are things about like desire for food, desire for sex is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it's God wants us these things to be directed in the right angle, to the right place in a marriage relationship or the right kinds of food, these kind of things. So they're not innately bad, but we want them to be controlled by reason. So let's go forward. Now, the limbic system, this emotional center, lower portion of the brain, the scientists who have the evolutionary background, they would call it the lizard brain. Uh, we, we don't necessarily think about it from that perspective, but it is kind of our animal desires are more a part of the, what we would call the limbic system. So it's the lower nature, it has to do with fight or flight, your appetite for food and sex, and it has to do with emotions such as fear, stress, lust, impulses like worry, anxiety, anger, irritability, negativity, and aggression. So you have these things that are a part of the limbic system, and if we allow that part of our uh, brain to rule, we will live these kinds of emotions, but God wants us to live a reasonable existence where the higher powers, the mental faculties like our decision-making, our spiritual aspects, the love and empathy, that these things would rather rule than the lower nature. So they want to be, we want to be directed by the higher nature. And the Bible talks about this, Philippians 3.19, where it says their God is their stomach. And that is a part of the American lifestyle. Largely, um, we see more and more that people are literally run. I mean, we have channels that are constantly talking about, you know, this who can eat the most or, uh, you know, constantly think about food. People can watch that all day. It talks about their God being their stomach. The desires of the flesh or the sinful nature. That's what we have there in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. Paul talks about it uh, largely there through the book of Romans and other places in the book of Galatians also where he talks about the flesh, the flesh, the lust of the flesh. First John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so we have here in Romans chapter 8 verses 6 and 7 says to be carnally minded is death and to be spiritually minded is life and peace, he says. One of the interesting things about that is when you look at the Bible, when you look at the writings of Paul, Paul says that the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject unto the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so many Christians have said, there, there it is. You, the Bible says you can't keep the law of God. And then two verses later, Paul says, he says that those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. But then he says, but you, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, because we need to be born again. The lower nature is, is what we are governed by as we're born. But Jesus says you need to be changed. You need to be transformed. You need to be born again. And that's my hope that we all have a born again experience so that we begin to love the things that God has called us to love. Now Scott's gonna come up and he's gonna share with us some more. What does this have to do with television? You may be wondering. You, you understand these different dynamics in your brain now. Maybe, maybe that clarified some things for you about what's happening within you when you have certain feelings or thoughts or decisions or powers within you that, the, that God enables you to have. But what does this have to do with television? I want you to imagine like you have a switch on the front of your frontal lobe, all right? Now, everybody's is in the on position right now, I hope. You're listening, you're thinking, your frontal lobe is on. But when you sit down to view entertainment television. You can imagine like that switch literally is turned off. The frontal lobe is rendered inert. It's, it's out of commission. 
There's virtually no frontal lobe activity while you are viewing entertainment television. Now notice I said entertainment television because Chad and Fadia Cruiser, for example, produce a, a video series of documentaries called Scripture Mysteries. They are awesome for sharing present truth with people in a documentary format, which is different than entertainment television. Now what, in, what is entertainment television doing simultaneously? In addition to shutting off the frontal lobe, unlike watching a sermon or watching a, a DVD seminar called Media on the Brain, you know, watching these kinds of things. Theatrical style entertainment television will give you some sort of limbic impulse as well. Maybe the, the, the film is designed to make you feel angry or fearful or, or aggressive or lustful or sad. Or maybe it's just straight up amusement. I've been told with some programs, you look at it and you're like, this doesn't make sense. Like, how is this possible? This is so fake. How is that even funny? And people tell you, you're not supposed to think about it. Have you ever heard that about TV before? You're not supposed to think about it. You're supposed to let the frontal lobe go out and the, limb, the, the, the filmmaker leads you into this limbic experience of some kind. Now the question is, what are the long-term effects of this? Well, the Bible has told us, we've known this for 2,000 years, for the one who sows to his own flesh, so if you feed to your flesh, if you sow seeds to your flesh, you will reap from the flesh corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, or where the Spirit communicates, where the Spirit gives us victory, the frontal lobe, then you will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I think of it like this. You've got these two competing areas of the brain, limbic system, frontal lobe. Imagine it like you've got two different arms that you're exercising, and every morning you get up and you pump iron like crazy with one of your arms, and you do it multiple times a day, but you leave the other arm in a sling for hours a day, and, and eventually, this one's going to become really strong, and this one's going to become emaciated, weak, and, and virtually useless, isn't it? That's what we do with our brains. We exercise the circuits of our brains along one set of circuitry, limbic circuits, and the frontal lobe weakens and becomes virtually, virtually emaciated like an arm would. Now, what are some other studies on media? on television mainly. Uh, we're going to be talking about gaming and music and everything in later sessions, but sticking with TV, these two books right here, I've done a good job collecting a lot of the studies that have been done. I'm just going to bullet point them for you. For the sake of efficiency, we're going to move quickly through them. TV viewing has been shown in studies to be a major cause of depression, decreases academic achievement, inhibits speech development, decreases reading comprehension, increases the likelihood of children developing ADHD, decreases creativity and imagination. This was a funny one for me. I mentioned I have a two-year-old, and we don't show him any, any of this sort of material, but we had a well-meaning loved one approach us, and they said, you know, Scott and Cammie, my wife's name is Cammie, you, you guys should show your little, little two-year-old Levi some, some, you know, Veggie Tales or Dora the Explorer, something like this, because then he will be able to develop an imagination and creativity. Well, wait a minute. Didn't the studies say the opposite? It reduces creativity, not enhances it because you're in a passive state. Continuing on. Television viewing decreases your ability to, to succeed, causes vision problems, makes you less likely to exercise, causes emotional problems, including in some cases post-traumatic stress disorder. And in the 1980s, this is an interesting one, in counties that got cable television earliest, there were spikes in the rates of autism that were observed. And the ongoing debate about the causes of autism, there's an interesting factor. Makes you eat more, makes you crave sugary foods, causes obesity increases children's chances of becoming alcoholics later in life. You'll see later why that is. In addition to that, it makes men feel less in love with their partners, makes women feel less deserving of being loved, lowers self-esteem and confidence, and increases the desire for cosmetic surgical procedures. <laughs> I want to bring Fadia up because some particular sounds funny uh, when we think of this, but it's actually true. Uh, these things, maybe some of you women might have laughed, but think about it. We do think in these terms. And why do we? Because we've been watching so much of this stuff that it has changed the way we look at things. Why do we make the decisions we do as women on the things we wear and the things we do and the, the men we decide to hang around with, uh, to, to be with, right? Where did we get these ideas from? Do you ever think about that? What your moral um, choices are in life? Do you ever think that it comes back to this? I know it sounds funny, but this um, cosmetic surgical procedures, I have a cousin-in-law that is 
a plastic surgeon in uh, Southern California, and she says a lot of her patients that come in have mental illness. They are obsessed with these things, and she tries to talk them out of it because she realizes they have issues that are much deeper than just you know, trying to look good, right? It's, it's become a big issue for them because think about it. We were not made to look at these things in this way, right? Everything is so glamorized on television that when I look at myself in the mirror, I look nothing like that, right? I do not look like that. And so I'm trying to do something that's not even a reality. Think about that you're trying to strive for something that's not even a reality. And then you look down on yourself and you think, I'm not beautiful. And I literally, I have this, you know, I, I, in my head, what I see myself as is not what other people see, okay? It's, it, it's that real, people. It's that real. Where did that come from? It didn't just come from me. It came from years of watching something that was not real and it has become a part of my mind. That's sobering. As Christians today, what should be the thing that is on our minds? Who should we want to be like? Christ. You saw the graph that, that Scott just showed us about spirituality. Uh, amongst Adventists, just a group of 50, but I'm sure there's more of you here that could even attest to that, about how much time is spent in uh, media and how much time is spent with the Lord. I grew up in the Adventist church. I grew up going through our whole system and uh, in academy and all of that, and there was always a struggle. I loved being at school. I loved being at church. I loved the fellowship, but there was always a struggle because why? When I came home, I was being deprogrammed of everything I had just learned at school, right? How many hours I spent. Do you know I actually learned the English language from watching television? That's how much TV was a part of my life. And then uh, above that, your vocabulary, even though you learned English from your parents, your vocabulary becomes a part um, of you from television, all these areas are so affected, but as women especially, I started to identify myself um, based on television and associating with young men based on television. I thought, that's where happiness is. That's where I find things, and it's not. It's all a sham. If you look just at a basic level in Revelation of the two women, just on appearances, how they're described, which woman do you want to be? I'm appealing to, to the ladies here. Which woman do you want to be? Which woman is the world telling you to be? But which woman does God want you to be? The other one is making the world drunk with her wine. And if you look over and over, God is calling us to be sober-minded. And that's in our fashion as well. We're so drunk with fashion, we hurt ourselves. We cause others to fall because of the way we dress. And we think it's okay. That's drunk. That, that's being drunk. That's drunkenness in our spirituality. And God is calling us to be sober-minded. If you look in First Peter, three times Peter mentions the word sober. And one of them, he's talking about knowing that the end is at hand. Be sober-minded and watch and pray. Watch and pray over and over. Is it possible for us to be spending that much time in media and yet be able to watch and pray? No. These are just things I just want to share with you all to be thinking about it as you're in this seminar. Think about in your own heart, how much time am I really spending in this? And I'm speaking to myself as well. Um, ladies, Facebook is a real issue, is it not? And some of our friends post things of themselves that we should not be looking at. And you start to think, oh, I don't, I don't look like that or, or I'm not having that much fun or whatever the case may be. And we start to compare ourselves with others and we're only to compare ourselves with Christ. Um, I think that's it for now. We'll all have to share more later, but just some thoughts to think about as, as you're going through this seminar and, and look in your own life. What are some things I can be cutting out? 
If you stick around for part five, we're actually going to be talking more about the studies on Facebook. And so some of the things Fadia brought up, we will follow up on. But some more studies that have been done. TV viewing has also been shown to make families spend less time together, increase the divorce rate, increase negative moods, increase copycat suicides. Even in the news, this was an interesting one. I was curious about what are the effects of viewing uh, television news. If you view 14 minutes of negative televised news per day, you see an increase in stress hormones, worrisome thoughts, rates of depression, all of these negative effects. But if you read that same news instead of watching it, it doesn't uh, have those effects. Pretty interesting. So continuing, and by the way, that doesn't mean you, that we can never watch any news program, but we need to be even careful with the news. Reduces athletic performance, causes Alzheimer's disease, stresses the body. Actually, on the Alzheimer's disease one, real quick, this was Dr. Friedman's study, and what he explained was between the ages of 20 and 60, some of you are coming into that age of 20, and you're going, well, I'm not a little kid, and I'm not of Alzheimer's age, so I'm in the safe age group here for watching television, right? Not so. The more television you watch between the ages of 20 and 60, the higher your Alzheimer rates will go. And in addition to that, if you're in your teens and 20s, right now you are in the most most important time of your life for linking up the circuits of the frontal lobe which will define who you are spiritually for the rest of your life. And I said that statement as strongly as I could on purpose because I couldn't say it and I, I, I want to communicate that message. I wish I could be back at age 17, at age 21, when my frontal lobe was still developing, because I would have lived my life completely different. So if you're in the room and you are a young person, you're lucky, because you get to make a decision today to live your life in a way to, de to determine your spiritual destiny because of the circuits that are lining up and linking up right now in your brain as you develop. You know your frontal lobe is developing until your late 20s, so just be aware of that. Stresses the body, causes sleep deprivation, has doubled the murder rate in Western societies. Now that one's hard to swallow, so I gotta explain that one. This was the center wall study that was done a number of decades ago, and they took a look at two separate societies, the United States and Canada. And they noticed that these two societies kind of had a flat murder rate, up and down, homicide rate wasn't going much anywhere, but then all of a sudden they both experienced a spike in the murder rate that doubled. United States and Canada, and both of them had a doubling in the murder rate 15 years from when television came into the society. Now isn't that an interesting coincidence, they thought. Is it television? How could it be? They, they postulated, they speculated, they said, I, I, we're looking at South Africa now, and they said they got television later, 1970s. They said, we bet within 15 years we're going to see another spike in the murder rate. Because they couldn't find any other correlating factors in the United States and Canada. They're two very different societies with different gun control laws, different socioeconomic factors. They said, maybe it was the television. Let's test that theory. And so they did. Guess what happened in South Africa? Within 15 years of television coming in, a doubling in the murder rate again. And they concluded that television was the cause of this. Now you might wonder, well, how's that possible? What were we watching in the, in the 50s? I don't see that many people in this room who were alive in the 50s, but some of you may, maybe who were. It was what, Leave it to Beaver? Uh, Lassie? I mean, I watched these kids on these, these, these shows on the, on the kids' programs on reruns as a kid. These aren't violent programs. How are these things causing the murder rate to double, Dr. Centerwall? Well, we now know the frontal lobe is weakened the limbic system is enhanced. So guess what? We become a more aggressive, impulsive society with less control. I don't say this statement for effect. I mean this as a scientific statement. We are a brain-damaged society if we've been raised on television. And so it's going to have consequences in terms of people's aggression and self-control. It's not going to make everyone a murderer, but it makes everyone a little bit more impulsive and a little bit less self-controlled. And so some people who were on the edge of, of, of going off of the cliff and becoming murderers, they were pushed off the edge being raised with television. Continuing on with the studies, it stunts the development of children's brains, it damages the brains of both children and adults, and it decreases your lifespan. This, I referred to this on the, on the stage yesterday, of course, that cigarette smoking takes 11 minutes off your life for each cigarette you smoke. 11 minutes off your lifespan for each cigarette you smoke. And they figure that out by just looking at the average lifespan of an American, and then the average lifespan of a smoker, how much they smoked, and they do a little math, and they say for each cigarette, incrementalize it, and you've got 11 minutes per cigarette shortening your lifespan. Guess what, an hour of television, for each hour, you're looking at twice that, 22 minutes off your life. So you thought you wasted an hour of time watching that show, but every hour you're adding another 22 minutes that you're losing from your life. So pretty interesting statistics, but let's move forward to the morality because you'll notice I have not said anything about if only we would stop watching the violent, sexual, immoral stuff on TV, and if only we could just watch some good moral programming, 
then we'd be better off. That's not so much the message because what we're learning now in the 21st century about the brain is it is the form of media itself that is having these deleterious effects upon the brain. But when we look at the morality of it, it takes it to a whole new level of scary. We're actually viewing 200,000 acts of violence by the age of 18, 6,588 beer commercials by the age of 18. And, and by the way, if you're skipping through the commercials, DVRing the commercials, thinking that you're not being advertised to, stick around for part two. We're going to talk about the advertising industry, the control and manipulation that is happening in media. And one of those examples is through product placements. They actually are advertising to you in the show. They will place products at strategic moments and you will be advertised to while the program is going on. There are actually 316,000 alcohol product placements put into primetime television alone in 2009. So that's a significant amount of advertising that's happening for alcohol products. Now you wonder why children's chances of becoming alcoholics later in life goes up the more TV you watch more statistics on the morality of things. Between the ages of 8 and 18, we are viewing 13,250 hours of programming containing sexual content. And this is not very, very uh, perennial, uh, you know, uh, infrequent. This isn't infrequent references. This is once every 10 minutes. Once every 10 minutes, there's a sexual scene or reference happening in this, these television programs. So if you do a little math, the 13,000 hours of 10, to every 10 minutes having a sexual reference adds up to 79,500 scenes of a sexual nature. They, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study to find out how much of these sex references and scenes are about morality, are about self-control, abstinence. Guess what percentage? Less than 1%. So 99 plus percent of these sexual things. Is it wrong to talk about sex? Absolutely not. But the way the media is, it absolutely is wrong. Chad and Fadi are going to explain, this is not just about entertainment. It's not about just what we're seeing. All right. This, I, I find this absolutely fascinating. The year was 1992 in a city called Parma in Italy. And what happened was this. There were scientists working there in the university there in Parma. And what they discovered was very fascinating. Some of you may have heard of it. What happened was this. They had these monkeys called the macaque monkeys. And they planted electrodes in their brains. And they were looking somewhat at the motor cortex. Seeing, uh, I, I don't remember the specific purpose. But they were watching what happened in the brain when a monkey would take a peanut and put the peanut in their mouth. And so then anytime they would do that, they would have a, some kind of contraption that would either make a buzz or would alert the scientists when they would, would do that. So they would see what was taking place in the brain as they were mapping the brain of these macaque monkeys. Now, what ended up happening was very, very interesting. What they discovered was that one of the scientists was in the room, as the story goes, and the scientist, I don't know if you're like me, but if food is sitting around, it's hard not to just eat it, right? So sometimes it's better to just put the food away or brush your teeth when you're done or something, and you're done. But nevertheless, these scientists are sitting around, there's peanuts there, and one of the scientists grabbed a peanut, and he took the peanut, and he put it in his mouth, and the little machine went bing! in the monkey's brain. The monkey was watching the scientist, and as he was watching the scientist, his brain responded as if he were eating the peanut. Meaning, what the monkey looked at registered in the monkey's brain as if he was doing something in a similar fashion. And so the scientists came up with a term they called these mirror neurons. Mirror neurons. I mean, you know, science just showed, discovered this in 1992, but we've known, we've had a saying much longer, monkey see, monkey do, right? I mean, this is nothing new. Uh, you know, just human psychology, just natural humanity. See it in the Bible too. The Bible recognized that the things you look at, they actually change you. It's a biblical principle, right? And so uh, this, these mirror neurons, but it goes even further than just things that you see like on television. So whatever we see with our eyes is interpreted by our brains is if we are actually doing the activity ourselves. Now, how does that affect you and me, right? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, you can think of simple things like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said that if, if, you know, a man looks on a woman and lusts after her, he said, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus understood this principle maybe because he was also the creator, Right? 
and the Creator understand how the brain actually works. And so the things that we look at, we are changed by the things that we think about. So we, it's not as if, oh, because I remember Scott and I, we, we were not raised Adventist, neither of us were. And we went to actually a Christian college that was a non-Adventist college. We took a class called CPOL, Christian Perspectives on Learning. And they basically told us you could watch anything you want as long as you have a a biblical perspective, you mean you got to make a biblical twist on it, and then it's okay to watch. Now, according to mirror neurons, is that true, yes or no? No, you're affected by it, even if you try to act like, oh, but I, I, put, a, I put a spiritual, you know, taint on, or a, you know, twist on it, and it makes it okay. Is that actually true? Jesus would say no, right? He said, if you look on a woman and lust after her, you committed adultery with her already in your heart. You, you don't just try to wrap a moral around that and it fixes the problem. Now, let's think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, very powerful passage. This is where we get that principle of by beholding, we become changed. Where the Bible actually tells us in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But then it says, but we all, the newer translations say, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. It says, we all, it's like taking a veil off your face and looking as into a mirror at the glory of the Lord. What's the glory of the Lord? It's his character. So if we, it's like looking, when you look at Jesus or when you look at God and his love and his character, and it says, but we all with unveiled face, when you look at Jesus, it's like taking a veil off your face that you're now seeing clearly. And as you look at Jesus, we all with unveiled face beholding or looking as into a mirror at the glory or the character of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what the text says is that when you look at Jesus, when you look at his character, when you look at his life, when you look at his love and his compassion and his empathy, and when you look at his lifestyle, the Bible says that you're actually, when you look at him, you're changed into his image. Isn't that powerful? That is because God actually created in humanity mirror neurons. That what we look at, so we can always look at it from the bad side. Oh, you look at evil stuff and it'll taint you. That may be true, but there's a beautiful side to mirror neurons, and that's that if we look to the life of Christ, we actually become like Jesus. Is that good news, yes or no? And that's why this 25 to 1, 1 ratio of what we are taking in, what we are ingesting is affecting us. If we're spending a lot of time watching filth, we become filthy. If we w spend a lot of time watching, I mean, Scott and I used to just watch garbage. I mean, the things, the movies, the things we would watch together were terrible. But the fact is God changed our lives and there's a lot more changing that needs to happen in my life. I can testify that. My wife could testify to that. But the fact is the more I spend time with Jesus, looking at him in the Bible and the Gospels, looking at him in the desire of ages, it is something that changes you. It changes me. And so God wants to transform our lives. And so he's given us the opportunity through spending time with him, spending time in his word and in prayer. Increased exposure to media violence has been shown to result in more aggressive behavior, more aggressive thoughts, more angry feelings, less empathy, and fewer helping behaviors. Now think about it. You, you know that that's true. Just You don't need some scientific study to prove that to you. When you little boys watch a fighting movie, what do they start doing typically right after that movie? You know, I mean, they immediately, you just, you just can't help it. And the fact is, the boys who are a little older, we may not do it, but we feel like doing it. It's true. Guys watch a fighting movie, and we think we're the toughest guy in the world. I thought I was pretty tough until a couple of guys beat the living tar out of me, and I learned my lesson, you know? And so the fact is, sometimes we think we're tough, and the fact is, you feel that way when you watch these things, because you're being changed by what you look at, right? And so let's go forward. Now, also, more TV leads to increased sexual promiscuity. I mean, that just makes sense. Jesus said, if you look at a woman, you lust after her. And the fact is, I mean, with the pornography rates, I mean, being one of the greatest addictions in our country, and it's not just with young men anymore. Young women struggle with this also, and people watch these things, and they're changed by it. And then they have less joy in their marriage as a result. Jesus isn't keeping us away from something that just feels good. He wants your marriage to actually be more fulfilling. He wants you to overcome this so that it's not an issue that you don't have to take it with you for the rest of your life. Now also, uh, it, it increases the use of substances and it lowers levels of commitment. And think about it, if your frontal lobe is inhibited while you're watching these things, that is one of the reasons. So not only are you watching it, but your frontal lobe, which is the decision-making center, is basically shut down during that time period. Now Scott's going to come up and he's going to tell us something interesting about this.
This little anecdotal story is so powerful to me. It's about an Amish kid, and you probably know about the Amish that they do not have television. So this kid was raised without TV. But then he left the Amish community for a time, and he decided to indulge in his first movie ever. Now, this movie that he watched was an old Western. Now, again, if you're from the time of the old Westerns, you probably would, would, would say those ones were a lot more tame than today's movies. Has anybody seen an old Western movie in here? Okay, are they more or less violent than today's? Far less. Okay. That's exactly what I've seen as well. And so I think most of you young people probably would look at those and kind of laugh at them a little bit. Like, really? That's kind of fake. This Amish kid didn't laugh. He watched this first old Western film. It was the first movie he'd ever see. He saw somebody shot in the film. He turned white as a ghost, ran out of the house, and threw up. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, well, that's weird. That's a strange response. And then I thought, oh, actually, no, that's the normal response, isn't it? That's the, he's a little laboratory. That's the normal human response of somebody who is not raised being subjected and assaulted with these images to how the human organism should respond to seeing something horrific like this. It should sicken us, but we don't get sickened, do we? We think he's weird. We're actually the weird ones. You know what we are? We're that frog in the pot. We had it turned on very low in the, with Looney Tunes and whatever when we were young. And then, and, then, and then turned up the heat a little more. And then we could watch the PGs. And then when I was about 11, we could watch the PG-13s. And then when I was about 13, we could watch the R's with my dad. And all of a sudden, we're boiling alive in this, in this violent, and not just violence, all of the immorality. And it doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't affect us anymore in the same way of, of being horrified by it like we should, like the Amish kid was. He was the frog thrown into the pot of boiling water. He jumped out and said, that's not entertainment. What are you guys doing? And he asks a good question to us today. But the Bible actually addresses this issue of us being desensitized. I've heard people say things like, oh, it doesn't affect me. Sure, this media stuff, many people need to stay away from the immoral stuff in media because they may be more susceptible, but it doesn't affect me like it affects you. If that's true, that it doesn't affect you, that means you're in an even more dangerous place because that means you're become, you've become desensitized. 1 Timothy 4.2 refers to those who have seared their conscience. And my prayer and hope is that we would escape from this trap before we get to that point of searing our conscience. Searing reminded me of taking my hand. I don't actually do this, but if you were to do this, take your hand and slap it on a hot stove one time and, th and then turn the stove up a little more and do it again. And then every few days you're slapping your hand on there more and more. What would you eventually develop on your fingers? Calluses to the point where you could literally put your hand on that and, and it would not, you would not feel it anymore. Chad did this when we were teenagers. I just remember this. You used to put a lighter on your finger and he developed a callus and he would just hold the lighter on his finger. And I, it, it's amazing what the human nerves will do, but the brain is the same way. If we subject the brain to assaults like this, it will become calloused in its conscience. So we've been desensitized, but here's the challenge. Let's get resensitized. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 5.14 that there are people who are mature. And I want to be one of the mature in faith. And they are the ones who have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So we can retrain, the Holy Spirit will retrain in us our conscience, which is housed in the frontal lobe of our brain. Now, when, when you look at some very, very serious counsels in the Bible, I want you to hear this from your loving Father in heaven. Not from me, because this verse confronted me and it hit me pretty hard a, few, a couple of years ago when I was immersed in media and, and God was calling me out of this. And, and he said to me, Scott, 1 John 2.15, if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. Now that's some strong counsel, but do we need strong counsel sometime? Do we need to be convicted? I want the Lord to speak to me right where I need it, right where it hurts most, maybe. And he says, hey, when you love that stuff, when you like watching that, you don't love me. That's kind of hard to hear, isn't it? But it's good to hear, isn't it? You know, there was another verse that hit me kind of hard. It was Isaiah 33. And it talks about who can stand in the consuming fire. Now, brothers and sisters, who is the consuming fire? Our God is a consuming fire. So Isaiah 33 poses the question, who can stand in the very presence of God? Here comes the answer. Verse 15, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. 
Now that's striking. Now, is this some sort of like little, little legalistic trick where God's going to you know, keep us out of heaven on a technicality? He's like, oh, you watched something one time when you were a kid, so sorry, you can't stand in my presence, I won't allow it. No, th this is not some manufactured arbitrary thing. This is just an observation of reality. Whatever it is that we love in this life and immerse ourselves in, in this life, we will carry with us into that moment of decision, into that moment of judgment, if you will, where we are standing in the presence of God and one or two of these things will happen. Some will be consumed and some will be able to stand. And if I love the things of this world, I won't be able to stand in the presence of God. But if I despise the things of this world and I love the things of God, then when I walk into the presence of God, I'm finally home. Amen? That's an observation of reality, not just some, some arbitrary rule. But God says, if you're, if you're looking upon bloodshed and hearing of, of evil things, and you love that, you won't be able to stand when that time comes. And that's a strong warning that the Bible gives us, that God gives to us because He loves us, because He wants us to be there with Him. Here's a quotation from Review and Herald, March 13, 1900. This is amazing. This is from, this is from over 100 years ago, 114 years ago. Satan's work is to lead men to ignore God, to so engross and absorb the mind that God will not be in their thoughts. The education they have received has been of a character to confuse the mind and eclipse the true light. So we're talking about eclipsing the light of God, blocking it out, and confusing the mind. Satan does not wish the people to have a knowledge of God. And if he can set an operation, what does it say? theatrical performances that will so confuse the senses of the young that human beings will perish in darkness while light shines all about them. He, Satan, is well pleased. How did, how did she know? Theatrical performance. Now, were theatrical performances 113 years ago objectionable on a moral level and harmful? Yes, but how much more so today? are these screen-based, frontal lobe-suppressing, limbic system-enhancing, can I say confusing the mind, eclipsing the light of God's presence in our lives, how much more today is the theatrical-style entertainment doing these very things that theatrical performances somehow did also 113, 14 years ago? This is a prophetic statement, amen? How did she know theatrical performances would need to be warned against? By the way, do you see the dot, dot, dot there? I left out something. Some of you who know this quotation know what's left out. Be sure to be back for part four this afternoon, and you'll see the rest of this quotation with the dot, dot, dot. There's your little cliffhanger there. But I have another quotation for you that really struck me on this. This is from Testimony, Volume 4, pages 252 to 253. There is no influence in our land more powerful to poison the imagination, to destroy religious impressions, and to blunt the relish for tranquil, the tranquil, tranquil pleasures and sober realities of life than theatrical amusements. The love for these scenes increases with every indulgence as the desire for intoxicating drink strengthens with its use. Did you hear that last part? Is she saying that, that, that theatrical amusements can be an addiction? like intoxicating drink, the love for these scenes increases with every indulgence as the desire for intoxicating drinks strengthens with its use. I think George Barner didn't discover something new, did he? <laughs> that media is, the, is, a, is an addiction. We've known this for a good time as a people. The question is, will we heed these counsels? Will we go back and say, wow, are my theatrical amusements that I am entertained with, are they starting to blunt the relish for tranquil pleasures, blunt the relish for tranquil pleasures. I almost feel like I need to trans translate that. That means it lessens my enjoyment for the simple pleasures of God's reality. Does our high-intensity, highly stimulating media environment have a tendency to make the rest of life, and especially spiritual things and reading of the Word of God, become boring? We've got a whole presentation called The End of Boredom. And I hope you come tomorrow to part five. You're going to hear a lot more about that and some of the science behind that, what, what we know about the brain and the pleasure centers of the brain. You're going to want to stick around for the six sessions. But I want to also hand it over to Chad to share something real quick as well, and then we'll close. I'm going to share with you a quote here that says, 
And there is nothing more calculated. So to the contrary of what we've just talked about, and there is nothing more calculated to energize the mind and strengthen the intellect than the study of the Word of God. Now someone may say, what? Nothing more calculated to strengthen the mind and intellect than the Word of God? Maybe, maybe some philosophy book or some scientific textbook could energize the mind and strengthen the intellect more than the, than, you know, more than the Word of God. But think about this for a moment. Just think from a logical perspective. If you read a scientific textbook, biology textbook, the greatest thing you could possibly do is come to the mental uh, understanding of the person who wrote the scientific textbook. Does that make sense? That's as high as you could get with that textbook. And so imagine a book that was given to us by divinity himself. Meaning, if God was the one who inspired the writers, the prophets of old, to, to share these things with us in the scriptures, in the Bible, speaking of the Bible, there is nothing so calculated to strengthen the mind and the intellect as the word of God. Meaning there is, there is an endless storehouse of, of messages made for you, divinely made for you. And so there's nothing like the Bible to help strengthen your mind to transform your life than the study of the word of God. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigor to the faculties as the broad ennobling truths of the Bible. If God's word were studied, it should be as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose that is rarely seen in these times. I believe that. I truly believe that. This book has changed my life. From the foolishness I had done, from the drugs of the past, from all those things when I, when I didn't know the truth, it has changed my mind. It has strengthened my mind. It has strengthened my spiritual experience getting to know Jesus, getting to know him on a personal level. She also makes a statement that young people would find the Bible to be the most enjoyable book in the world if they weren't spending so much time in novels. Now, most of us probably don't spend any time in novels because we have something that's much more novel than a novel, right? We have television, we have, we have video games. And could it be the reason we think it's boring is because we're filling our lives up with other things. And not all those things are bad in and of themselves. We're not talking about all these things being bad in and of themselves, but it's just that we're finding so much stimulation from the things of the world that we don't love the word of God. And I want to say this to you. By nature, as we already said, Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that the carnal mind, meaning the fleshly mind, the natural mind, is enmity against God. That means we have hatred, we have antipathy, we have the, a division between us and God. It says the carnal mind is enmity between, it, between us and God, and it says we are not, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The Bible said it's impossible to do and, and even like the things of God. By nature, you don't like the Bible. By nature, I didn't like the Bible. I didn't like to read the Bible initially. But the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The Bible says you are born again by the word of God. What that means is when you first start reading it, you don't like it. I didn't like it. But as I spent time in the word of God, looking at Jesus, turning my eyes away from the things of the world that I loved before, that God begins to change you and create a new heart inside of you. That's the new covenant experience. That God changes your heart. You can't do it on your own, but you can abide in him. You can spend time with Jesus in his word, allowing the Holy Spirit to change you, to transform you. And that's exactly, so you may say right now, but Chad, I like the movies. I like the junk that I'm watching and I don't like the Bible. That's natural. But Jesus said in John chapter three to Nicodemus, and he says it to you and me if we're in that situation. He says, you need to be born again. Peter tells us you're born again by the word of God. Friends, I want to challenge you to spend time in the word of God daily, to spend time in his word. And as you do, he will begin, just like he did in my life, begin to give you a love for the word of God and to change your tastes. Because the science shows now that your brain can be changed. God can change you. And so the Bible said that all along. But I want to challenge you to be in the word of God daily. Spend that time. Don't miss a day without your Savior, especially while you're at GYC. You think, oh, this is all spiritual. I don't need to spend any time in it on my own. Spend time, God, begin the day in prayer and personal time with Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, none of us have made it. We are all sinners in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. 
I used to, at one time, I did not enjoy your word, Father. And the fact is, I know, and I want others to know that you can take us. Sometimes we think, oh, they like it because they're naturally spiritual. None of us are naturally spiritual. We all, by nature, are at enmity against you and your word. And, Father, my prayer is that each one of us, young and old in this place, will be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that we will experience what Jesus talked about telling Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. May your Holy Spirit blow upon us as we read your word and may we be changed in our minds and hearts by our Savior Jesus Christ that we begin to have a love for the things of your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.